Hello, I'm PJ Matthews from the School of English, Drama and Film at University College Dublin. Welcome to this UCD ScholarCast. The following lecture in the series The Art of Popular Culture, From the Meeting of the Waters to River Dance, will be given by Anne Fogarty, Professor of James Joyce Studies at University College Dublin. Joyce and Popular Culture In the Ithaca episode of Ulysses, we are asked what Bloom's last thoughts might be before he falls asleep. Bloom, who is currently employed as an advertising canvasser for the Freeman's Journal, has spent much of the day designing and placing an ad for Alfred Keyes with his own newspaper. Ironically, but fittingly, his final waking moments focus on the composition of the perfect advertisement. We are asked, what were habitually his final meditations? Of some one sole unique advertisement to cause passers-by to stop in wonder, a poster novelty with all extraneous secretions excluded, reduced to its simplest and most efficient means, not exceeding the span of casual vision and congruous with the velocity of modern life. Bloom's sleeping musing seems utterly modern. His aim of creating an ad that keeps pace with the speed of contemporary existence is, of course, mildly comic, a distortion of his more humdrum daytime activity. But it is also an appropriate ambition in this epic of modern life, Ulysses. At this juncture, as at many others, Joyce's Ulysses not only captures aspects of everyday life in 1904, but uncannily anticipates the further developments of late capitalism in the 20th and 21st centuries. Synchronising commodities with consumer desires remains the driving force of capitalist economies. In this seeming insight into Bloom's unconscious in Ithaca, Joyce at once captures the essence of 20th century society and mockingly lays it bare. The Dublin that Joyce depicts in Ulysses teeters between a stagnating traditionalism and the accelerated advent of the modern. Ulysses, as a consequence, does not just represent all of the many aspects of a consumerist society. It also abounds in references to popular culture. Ulysses is rich in allusion to music hall songs, pornographic novels, 19th century theatrical melodramas, silent cinema, as many have argued, women's romance and Irish nationalist literature, including ballads. Joyce, with his encyclopedic vision, captures the detail of everyday existence. Almost perversely, he homes in on objects and cultural events that would otherwise be forgotten. As readers, we are invited to engage with a wide spectrum of popular culture. Yet, we are also required to be adepts in the canon of Western culture. Ulysses reworks and rewrites many of Western culture's prominent texts. Most famously, it uses aspects of Homer's Odyssey as its scaffolding, and also mines this text as a reservoir for symbolic plots and images. Numerous other writers and artists are, of course, subsumed into the fabric of Ulysses, including Ibsen, Dante, Shakespeare and Wagner. In reading Joyce's works, we draw on competing or even clashing cultural frameworks. Joycean textuality indiscriminately and anarchically interweaves high and low culture. 
but his characters are for the most part taken up by the trivia of everyday life and routine acts of consumption. Ulysses telescopes and cannibalizes many of the masterpieces of Western culture for its own purposes. It also elaborately uncovers the degree to which mass or popular culture configures and determines modern consciousness. Advertising jingles are as memorable and of as much weight in Ulysses, for example, what is home without plum trees potted meat, as opera arias or quotations from Shakespeare. What then are we to make of Joyce's vision of popular culture? As Orby Kirshner points out, one could argue that his works increasingly foreground popular culture rather than high art, where the lofty pretensions of Stephen Dedalus colour the fields of reference in a portrait of the artist as a young man, Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake, by contrast, more readily concentrate on and embrace all kinds of cultural ephemera and detritus, including guidebooks, songs, folk mythology, children's rhymes, journalism and advertisements. Joyce's works provocatively break down the divisions between notional spheres of high art and popular culture. His writings also systematically undermine any fastidiousness that people might have about the artefacts of mass entertainment. However, they do not simply reduce culture to inert catalogues or redundant lists of abstruse points of reference. Rather, I would argue, in Joyce's texts, popular culture is represented as a dynamic force. It may pervade the consciousness of his characters, or indeed inform his narratives and stylistic experiments. But popular culture remains a contested force field. It is not simply imposed from without, but reconfigured from within, and made part of a series of debates and warring articulations. At the turn of the 20th century, debates about popular culture in Ireland were necessarily bound up with the politics of nationalism. In his much-cited and much-misrepresented essay, The Necessity for De-Anglicising Ireland, Douglas Hyde argued that the Irish desire for political independence from England was incongruous. He held that the aim of achieving political sovereignty made little sense given the unquestioning assumption of English language and culture by the Irish. Hyde condemned the failure of his own country people to appreciate Irish music, language and customs. However, above all, he deplored the extent to which the acceptance of foreign influence meant succumbing to the latter-day products of mass culture. As he said, we must set our face sternly against penny dreadfuls, shilling shockers, and still more the garbage of vulgar English weeklies like Bow Bells and the Police Intelligence. James Joyce's essays and lectures on the politics of Irish culture mirror, in fact, many of Douglas Hyde's points, but come to very different conclusions. In The Day of the Rabblement, which Joyce published while still a student at University College Dublin, he famously attacked the objectives and achievements of the Irish Literary Theatre, later to become the Abbey Theatre, and of the literary revival in general. 
His chief reason for this denunciation was the belief that the literary theatre had caved in to populism. As a result, he declared that this theatre must be considered, as he said, the property of the rabblement of the most belated race in Europe. His analysis of the chief writers linked with the revival, whom he revered, such as W.B. Yeats or George Moore, was equally negative and merely reinforced his belief that no Irish artist was capable of producing work that was radical or new. In Ireland, Island of Saints and Sages, a lecture that he delivered some six years later in 1907 at the Università Popolare Trieste in Italy, his views are, however, somewhat more tempered. Akin to Douglas Hyde, he demonstrates the cultural achievements of the Irish, both in their own language and through their work as Christian missionaries on the continent. He stresses the antiquity of Irish civilization, but also emphasizes that this civilization is, as he declares, an immense woven fabric made up of different elements taken from many other cultures and traditions. He concludes that no race or language can be deemed pure or virgin and that nationality must find its justification in something more stable and lasting than blood or human speech. Like Douglas Hyde, Joyce stresses the difference of the Irish and their separate history and culture. He also, like Hyde, notes the current vacuum in Irish art. But unlike Hyde, he refuses to be prescriptive. And above all, he does not advocate a retreat to a monoglot Irish-speaking insularity. Indeed, it is precisely the impurity of Irish culture that he vaunts and which he is later to underscore in his fictions and explore in its admixture of clashing elements. The accounts of mass culture and modernity put forward by the first Frankfurt School of German Marxism are still opposite in considering the opposing dimensions of Joyce's representations of the troubled cultural milieu of his characters. In their famous essay, The Culture Industry, Enlightenment as Mass Deception, Max Horkheimer and Theodor Adorno mounted a devastating critique of the ideological underpinnings of the mass media, including the cinema, journalism and the popular press. They contended that modern mass culture induces conformism in consumers. It standardises responses and aesthetic forms and precludes the development of anything new, radical or deviant. Mass culture for Horkheimer and Adorno is an all-enveloping means of domination and social regulation. It takes over people's inner lives and rules out the possibility of dissent or opposition. They conclude that mass culture has succeeded in reifying human emotions and desires. At the end of their essay, they sum up their views as follows. The most intimate reactions of human beings have been so thoroughly reified that the idea of anything specific in themselves now persists only as an utterly abstract notion. Personality scarcely signifies anything more than shining white teeth and freedom from body odour and emotions. 
the triumph of advertising in the culture industry is that consumers feel compelled to buy and use its products, even though they see through it. The views of Walter Benjamin are no less trenchant, but he allows for greater gaps between ideology and the individual. In his great unfinished study of 19th century Paris, Benjamin approaches the task of cultural investigation as a psychoanalyst would, by amassing a vast quantity of data describing its objects and events. For Benjamin, modern culture is a kind of collective dream, or as he terms it, a phantasmagoria. The arcades, which were new elaborate glass and steel corridors of shops, function as one of the chief metaphors for the way in which mass culture operates for Benjamin and for the way in which it might be analysed. The shops in these arcades became museums for the objects and fetishised goods of capitalism. This new sexualized economy, Benjamin notes, depends on the creation of ornate thresholds, portals and doorways. Yet the illusory and treacherous setting that capitalism creates for the sale of goods also permits alternative modes of perception. To the salesperson or shopkeeper, Benjamin opposes the collector. The collector amasses objects and removes them from their context, thereby severing the link to the exchange values of the market. In so doing, these objects become, as Benjamin says, dialectical images and open up points of intersection between past and present. They become exposed to us in a new way, in what Benjamin calls the now of recognisability. Thus, the collector for Benjamin is someone who is a byproduct of capitalism and mass culture, but is yet capable of laying bare its meanings. In Joyce's text, his characters may be seen as positioned between these two conflicting views of mass culture. They succumb to its effects and are controlled by its potent projections of desire, as Horkheimer and Adorno argue but they are also often in the more self-aware or self-critical position of the collector described by Benjamin. Hence, they have the ability to penetrate the illusions of capitalism. They can use its fetishised commodities to uncover problematic aspects of contemporary colonial politics or point to troubling links between past and present. Culture in an encounter, the second story of Dubliners, is depicted as a series of conflicting spheres which defy any notion of ethnic purity or of a watertight national identity. The very first sentence is intended as a jolt to those who promoted a belief in a sacrosanct, neatly bounded Irishness. It reads as follows. It was Joe Dillon who introduced the Wild West to us. Joe Dillon, who later ironically turns out to have a vocation for the priesthood, supplies his brother's school friends with British adventure magazines for boys, including, and they are named in the story, The Union Jack, Pluck and The Halfpenny Marvel. The discovery of one of these magazines, called The Apache Chief by Father Butler during a lesson at school, invites the priest's scorn and anger. He condemns such reading material on class grounds as the province of national schoolboys, 
that is, of working-class boys. Even though these stories feed the boys' imaginations in an encounter and give expression to their feelings of unruliness and dissent, culture in this story is linked more with friction and oppression than with uniformity or escape. The narrator himself admits that he does not share the preferences of his friends for Westerns, which he seems to see as juvenile. Rather, he prefers American detective stories. It is not just the case that the boys then have succumbed to the products of British imperial culture. The lure of other imperialisms are also a factor. The deeply disturbing encounter with the green-eyed man near the daughter in Ring's End also revolves around another notional cultural curriculum and reading regime. A confusing discussion of culture and its parameters ensues when the man admits to his literary predilections for Thomas Moore, Walter Scott and Bulwer-Lytton. His more orthodox taste and inclusion even of an Irish author, however, are at odds with his perversity and threatening nature. The narrator, when questioned, pretends to have the same reading preferences as this disturbing chance acquaintance. He later, of course, finds himself discomfited by the man's disturbing monologue with its intimations of pederasty and sexual sadism. Questions of literary taste and value and of proper reading material remain unresolved and blurred in this story. So too does the nature of the unsavoury transgression with which the queer old josser, as he is called, is connected and the nature of the guilt that the narrator endures at the end of the tale. Culture in an encounter is something that has constantly to be renegotiated and defended. It also acts as an ambiguous index of perversion, desire, difference and failure. Similar themes are addressed in Arby, the following story in Dubliners. The assorted reading material of the nameless dead priest is noted at the beginning of the tale. Like in an encounter, we have a sense of a cultural curriculum being announced and put under scrutiny. The priest, who was a former tenant in the protagonist's house, has left a motley collection of books behind, and they are listed for us. The Abbot by Walter Scott, The Devout Communicant, and The Memoirs of Vidocq. Apparently appropriate Catholic texts, such as Scott's novel about a page boy serving the Catholic Mary Queen of Scots, sits uneasily alongside the pseudo-autobiography of the shady François-Jules Vidoc, who was supposedly a criminal, informer and detective. Culture, once again, in this story, is depicted as inchoate and rooted in the illicit. The narrator, however, links himself with a high-minded romantic idealism that is almost feudal in nature. He nurtures an unbending devotion to Mangan's sister, who is at once an object of desire and of sexual fixation. His quest to get to the Arby Bazaar in Ballsbridge is depicted as a test of his ardour, a necessary pilgrimage by which he can prove himself worthy of his love. The bazaar, with its tinges of Orientalist exoticism, acts as a further phantom embodiment of the boy's inexpressible and sublimated desire. Joyce, in fact, provides us with a very attenuated account of this 
1894 charity bazaar, which, as Stephanie Raines has shown, was an elaborate showcase of the burgeoning consumer culture of late 19th century Ireland. Instead of seeing it as a beacon of modernity, the narrator is repelled by its commercialism and its patent imperialist overtones. The English accents of the stallholders are jarring to him, we learn at the end of the story. His hopes dashed and his money well nigh gone, he sees himself, as he tells us at the end of the story, as a creature driven and derided by vanity. Joyce, however, leaves the nature of his disturbing epiphany unclear. Has the boy gained an unsettling insight into the vulgarity and debasement of modern culture and its ideological underpinnings, as in the manner of Horkheimer and Adorno? Or does he still cling to his idealism, despite his discovery of the tawdriness of the Arabi Bazaar, his one-time goal? In Ulysses, desire, popular culture and capitalism are even more tightly interwoven than in Dubliners. In the Wandering Rocks episode, Bloom is titillated by Sweets of Sin, the pornographic novel that he purchases as a peace offering for Molly. However, his response is not simply the stock reaction of someone buying a commodified object and pre-designed by the market. As he test reads passages from the book, they become expressive of his thwarted desire for Molly. Moreover, Joyce undercuts his ersatz pleasure in the overblown sexual descriptions of this novel when he actually proceeds to purchase it. The phlegmy coughs of the shopman, his raw-skinned crown and the dingy curtains of his shop provide an ironic counterpoint to the intermingled emotions conjured up by Bloom's brows in this erotic novel. The neediness and penury of Dublin in 1904 punctures the illusion of unadulterated pleasure peddled by sweets of sin. The Nausicaa episode similarly interfuses perspectives and cross-contaminates several genres from popular culture. Gertie MacDowell and Leopold Bloom mutually act as objects of desire for each other and play roles in scripts that are alternatively romantic and pornographic. Gertie is at once defined by the London fashion magazines that she reads and the romantic stories of manly men and compliant, self-sacrificing wives that she likes. Yet the material details of her real life provide a counter-narrative that renders her romantic illusions poignant as well as comic. We learn about the deeds of violence of her alcoholic father and the raging, splitting headaches of her mother, which she must alleviate. Also, the emphasis on her strenuous attempts to reproduce English fashion exposes the degree to which the magazines that she reads are subject to dislocation and reappropriation in a colonial context. The slightly shop-soiled ribbon bought at Cleary's summer sale to trim what the text calls her little love of a hat undercuts the effusive vocabulary derived from fashion journalism. The feminine nicety and prudishness of such publications are also, of course, cancelled out by the pornographic scenario involving voyeurism and masturbation that Joyce envisages in Nausicaa. The exchange of glances and looks between Gertie and Bloom 
he saw that she saw. Moreover, grants both a certain agency in the stolen and comically rendered erotic game. The ultimate revelation of Gertie's lameness indicates as well, retrospectively, the compensatory nature of her romantic fantasies and her desire for fashionable perfection. The Penelope episode acts as a further complex meditation on capitalism and modernity and the degree to which mass culture has moulded and commandeered individual desires and emotions. Molly Bloom's monologue is at once an expression of frustrated consumer longing and the uncovering of a deeper human yearning that far exceeds any of the needs that she voices. Molly, for example, looks forward to the forthcoming concert in Belfast with Boylan because, as she says, it would be exciting going around with him, shopping, buying those things in a new city. She also points up the penury of her existence and longs for a life of prosperity and unbridled spending that matches up to the illusions of satiated, all-cancelling pleasure created by women's magazines. Sure, you can't get on in this world without style. When I get it, I lash it around, she tells us. But the phantasmagoria of a consumer economy are set in a dialectical relation to other revealing images of human desire in this episode. We learn, for instance, of the old rubbishy dress that Molly is forced to wear at her concert performances. Or, more poignantly again, of the little woolly jacket that she knitted for Rudy and in which she had her dead son buried. The sudden upwelling of desire at the end of the Penelope episode countermands the dissatisfaction that she has voiced throughout. It transforms desire into nostalgia, but it also reveals its liberatory and utopian possibility, thereby severing it from the consumerist needs that she has talked about throughout. An eager fan reputedly once rushed up to James Joyce and asked if he could shake the hand of the man who wrote Ulysses. Joyce witheringly replied that he could, but that the hand had done many other things as well. As the anecdote suggests, high art and the seemingly more debased aspects of everyday life are for Joyce intimately cross-connected. Yet popular culture is not simply a seamless web for Joyce, providing further ambit for the endless semiosis of modernist fiction. Rather, Joyce shows that popular culture is unstable and subject to a constant process of appropriation and renegotiation. This is especially the case in a colonial culture which takes over mass products supplied by the imperial centre. Above all, Joyce exposes the conflicting aspects of popular culture. He makes us aware of the flimsiness and falsity of the illusions that it creates in the manner of Horkheimer and Adorno. But he also, like the collector of the detritus of modernity that Walter Benjamin envisages, opens up the now of recognisability buried in all of the cast-off objects, texts and people of modern popular culture. You have been listening to Anne Fogarty in a University College Dublin ScholarCast in the series The Art of Popular Culture from the Meeting of the Waters to Riverdance.
transcript of this lecture can be found at www.ucd.ie forward slash scholarcast. Thank you.